UK Motor Talk. Hi everyone, and as always, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, or whenever you're listening to us, hello. We are back again. This is podcast number 78, in case you're interested, fact fans. I'm here, I'm Mike. I'm Jim, good evening. I'm David, hello, and how are you? Well, we're all good, but however, we do have to say that I'm afraid Graham is not with us because of his bollards. And on that note, it's road safety week this week. Is it? Well, to be fair, it's been fairly safe on the roads, I think, this week, mainly because a lot of people just haven't been driving. So it's been nice and quiet, so I've been able to get to work quickly. So that is uh, one of the good things about lockdown 2.0, that, uh, yeah, traffic is a bit quieter. Well, you say that. I'm not, I'm not so convinced that it is. It seems really busy when I go into work in the morning. It, during the day, it definitely gets a bit quieter. But one thing I have noticed is that people have completely forgotten about their surroundings. There's, there's no spatial awareness going on. People just wandering out in the road in front of you. I, I just, so how has this changed? We, all of a sudden, we're focusing on how far away we are from everybody, but people have forgotten how big they are in themselves, I think. Social distancing doesn't apply to cars, does it? If you're inside a car, then it's okay. But there's a, yeah, in our local town, when we run out and do the banking, there's all the signs up and down on the road saying caution pedestrians in road. Surely the sign should be the other way and say to pedestrians, caution cars in road. You think it makes sense, wouldn't you? Or am I missing the point of the signs? Well, they are, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, it. There were three people in a row. I couldn't believe it. A few seconds apart. And when they eventually get to the other side and then look at you and you're just, you're stopped and your head is in your hands. And they look at you so old fashioned. They just say, <laughs> you know, just, what? Yeah, big metal noisy thing tends to hurt you. Get out of the way. Yes. <laughs> I'm a motorist. You're in my way. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Road safety. Exactly. My road, not yours. These are probably the same sort of people that thank you as they're turning right at a roundabout and you give way to them as they're approaching from the right. I've never understood why people do that. It's sort of a, thank you for not crashing into me. You're welcome, but don't don't thank me. You know. I think it's just a continuation of the idiocy of the human race and being put in these extreme circumstances we find ourselves in is just making it all the more obvious that most people are thick. Yeah, Pretty much, and it's, it's, it's almost a shame that a vaccine seems to be nearly there because we've all been given some basic rules to follow. Like, you know, don't stand really close to other people, wash your hands and put a mask on. Um, <laughs> yet there seem to be plenty of people who can't follow the rules. And if you can't follow these, then uh, then you're going to die. But the vaccine seems to be coming along too quickly, which is, is good news because I do have some shares in Pfizer, which have done rather well of late. Um, but it's also <laughs> bad news in that we don't seem to have uh, enough Darwinism going on. But uh, there we go. Well, it's a shame you can't vaccinate for idiocy. Uh, this is the problem as well, I think. Everyone's got so bored now of being in a lockdown that our tolerance for other people has, has also dropped off uh, i was in a shop earlier and someone was wandering the, wa- the wrong way down the one-way system and i just went i hope to god you didn't drive here <laughs> <laughs> you can't understand a simple one-way system just think oh really well it's not you know, a, I, it's almost though it's not a case of not even understanding it it's a case of being so ignorant and stupid and so not caring about your fellow human that they just don't bother looking and the amount of people you see as you said earlier wandering around without a mask on the local little shop here that we go to to avoid having to go into the big ones half the people are wandering around with their masks around their bloody chins i mean if you're gonna do that what's the point of wearing it sorry mm. 
it baffles me the um, the ignorance of some people. But it's you know they don't get it. The mask is to protect everybody else. It's mm. it's not to protect you know. I wear a mask to protect everybody else around me because if I've got it but I haven't got the symptoms, it stops me spreading it on. It's nothing to do with whether you're showing symptoms. It's if you haven't got it, it it prevents the spread. But people mm. just don't get it, and it's hugely frustrating. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole mask under your chin thing is a bit like when you see people cycling along with a helmet on their handlebars. It must yeah. be so inconvenient to, leave, to have it hanging off the handlebars. Surely the easiest place. To put it, it's on your head. Leave it at home if you're not going to bother. <laughs> or just leave it at home. Bother, throw it why away. Why bring it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And again, the people that you see driving around with seatbelts buckled up, but behind them, so it looks to the copper behind that you've got it on. They all know you haven't got it on. They're going to pull you. How <laughs> stupid are you? I read this week <laughs> that in terms of COVID and germs and other bits and pieces, that cars, dirty cars, sixteen times more germs than on a toilet seat. Which, for people that will have to work and get into cars other people have driven, is a bit, it's a bit disgusting, isn't it, when you think about it? It's it's kind of like, you know when you, you get a, a tissue or something and you sneeze, and it goes through the tissue and goes all over your hand, and you just go, ugh, and it's just that moment of just, I'm covered in snot, this is disgusting. You just go, ugh. Ugh. Yes, it is just, <laughs> oh, absolutely horrible. And I find myself thinking when I climb into a car... This, uh, is this is this going to be full of someone else's sneeze? Is that what it Probably. is? Is someone sneezed all over it? And we have to sanitise everything now, so we spray the insides of the cars with alcohol. And I may, I may, made the mistake of uh, having sprayed my hands, then adjusting my mask, but inhaling at the same time. And that stuff is strong. <laughs> if, if you've got the, oh, the stuff good. that comes yeah, out as an aerosol, wow, that, <laughs> that stuff is strong. Thank God I did it after I'd, I'd, uh, I'd driven rather than before, eh? Oh, but that's, I think that's the, uh, the Donald Trump approach, isn't it? Because by doing that, you're effectively sanitising your uh, airways and lungs. So that's, uh, that's a good thing. We have once again digressed, which will be a shock to all of you. I don't think we've actually digressed, because I don't think we actually started off with a specific topic, did we? To be fair, I think we, we all just launched off on a rant and, and got our week's frustrations off our chests, didn't we? But <laughs> Good. We, so we you... feel better for it, and we hope you do too. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to automotive-related things. I was on the phone to someone earlier who said to me, have a great weekend, have you got anything planned? And then there was an awkward silence. He went, what a stupid thing to say, because you can't do anything at the weekends anyway. <laughs> However, things have happened in the motorsport world. Formula One, Jim. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was mainly spiced up by the fact that it was, uh, it was cold and it rained a lot. Um, but also, I'd, uh, I'd like to uh, nominate honorary world champion status to, uh, to the company that resurfaced the track at Turkey. What a fantastic <laughs> yes. job. I, th- I think that deserves a little golf clap. Uh, what a race that was. Just the uh, nice, fresh, smooth tarmac with that lovely layer of bitumen over the top, just sealing everything in, making it the slickest surface in the world. I mean, they, they were just... It was hilarious to watch uh, Friday practice because we were in the office it was. watching a bit of it, weren't we? Yes. E- ever so slightly depressed when... Um, Lando Norris was in the middle of his 21st birthday celebrations. I think back to what I was doing when I was 21 and, and look 21. at where he is. And yeah, Lance Stroll had a, uh, another binary weekend. It's, it's a bit of, uh, it's almost like that scene out of Dumb and Dumber where he pulls up on the little hog and that he's traded for his Mutz Cuts van. 
And it's just when I think you possibly couldn't get any dumber, you do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Uh, as it happened, normal service was uh, was resumed for Lance Stroll on Sunday. Uh, he uh, he did go slightly backwards, but it was um, it, it was just an odd contrast. Whereas uh, you had certain drivers like uh, Barrichello, who was always good in the wet, and uh, and people would ask him and and say why, and it. He, you know, he gave a simple answer that I couldn't afford wet tyres, so when it rained, I just drove on slicks, and that was it, and he got very good at it. Um, Lewis Hamilton, I think, was a fairly similar story, but also his dad egging him on a bit would just stand closer and closer and closer to the apex of a corner and say, break when you go past me, and he'd just stand closer and closer and closer to it until uh, until it all went a bit wrong. Whereas Lance Stroll said, oh yes, well, Daddy bought me a racetrack, so I used to go out in all weathers. So there's a bit of a contrast in uh, in stories there. Go the but underdog, it was, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, just when you think, okay, gee, yeah, yeah, fair play, fair play. He then goes and says something like that, which puts you off him. But um, no, it was. I mean, it was just uh, again, putting any personal opinions or what you think of his dress sense or the way he lives his life or whatever else, you know, just hats off to Lewis. I really think we are watching the greatest sportsman our country's ever produced and probably the second best driver the world has ever seen, smashing all the records in front of him. So, fair play, golf club. Mm, well, yeah, I, I think so. I th- what was interesting was just watching people... Uh, as you see the drivers coming through the corners, yeah, that looks pretty good. Like George Russell was a good example of this. He goes into the corner all of a sudden, oh, look, he's backwards. How did that happen? <laughs> We'd be talking about something work-related, uh, and then, oh, there's another one backwards. How has this happened? Why are they sideways all of a sudden? That was just in the dry. It hadn't even started yeah. raining at that stage. No, it was just in um, the dry. But I think it did show the, the precision and, and the accuracy that was needed. When you looked at somebody like Max, who normally goes quite well in very, very, very wet conditions uh, and does have a remarkable ability to catch a car out of an outrageous slide that really a Formula One car shouldn't be able to drag itself out of. He's very good at that, but just a couple of times I think his uh, his frustration showed itself. But just what a contrast between Lewis and Valtteri, though. It was, you know, right, OK, Valtteri, into turn one, so, you know, we can all get a good start, bit of an odd start, some people starting in second gear, others in first gear, so Valtteri, or you need just stay close to it, oh, he's backwards. And, and that's it, I think, after the first corner. It was uh, it was all done and dusted by the shouting. But what did he have? Six six or seven spins, I think he had Valtteri in the... I the, thought it was to go I'll be race. honest. <laughs> four laps to go, his race engineer said, uh, OK, Valtteri, four laps to go. And he just said, I wish it was less. And I think afterwards, <laughs> his highlight of the weekend was uh, him and Daniel Ricciardo queuing up to uh, to do an interview. I said, he'll go first then. So they did rock, paper, scissors. Uh, Valtteri won, and he he opened his interview. Well, that's the first thing I've won all year, um, and, uh, and that was it. But it did show the the golf in I don't want to say golf in talent because Valtteri can half run Lewis close uh, or occasionally beat him, particularly in qualifying. But just that relentless race pace. I think you know Lewis had one off on what the first or second lap. He went straight on at, at one of the chicanes, but beyond that, he didn't put a wheel wrong by a millimeter. Um, and he was, you know, not just not just a little bit ahead, didn't get out into the lead and, and manage things or measure the gap or look after the tyres or anything like that. He was, you know, 30-odd seconds ahead. And he certainly wasn't in the best car this weekend. That Mercedes was no way near 
the best suited to the conditions, not by a long stretch. I think it's really easy to forget as well that regardless of how good or not a driver is on the grid, these are still the best motorsport drivers in terms of circuit drivers in the country, the world, whatever you want to call it. Formula One drivers are the best. So to be that much above the best is is quite exceptional. I think it's it's easy to lose sight of that. There was a fantastic um someone made a fantastic comment about about the Olympics and they said they should just put a normal bloke on the track to see how fast a person is, relatively <laughs> speaking, because it's very easy to to lose how good someone is relative. I mean it would be hilarious in a Formula One race to put a, a randomer in a in a Formula One car. Uh, just for the sheer comedy value, I mean, and obviously very dangerous, so don't do not do that. Um, I'd, uh, but, I'd give it a go. I'd be all right. How hard can it be? I just, I just, you know, it's it's easy very. to forget, I think, how how good these guys are. Um, and for someone, for anyone in that group of, of good guys to be that much better is, is exceptional. They're putting the civilian in a Formula One car thing has always been a an entertaining proposition for magazine editors and TV people making programmes about cars where you stick someone in who's never been in a Formula One car, they put their foot on the throttle, the whole thing stalls. So once they eventually get it going and they start driving around the circuit, they just let off the throttle and the thing practically comes to a halt because they're just not used to the downforce effect of not having power flowing through a car that is basically trying to stop itself with all the barge boards and the wings that are in the in the airflow. And seeing the adjustment that people have to make the first couple of times they sit in something, even just with wings and slicks, but particularly a Formula One car is is mm. amazing and I think yeah you're absolutely right if you stuck somebody in one who'd had a bit of practice and was fairly handy behind the wheel they still wouldn't come anywhere near they'd be lapped within a very very short period of time I suspect well mm. I think they, they often say that there's uh, if you just back off the throttle in a Formula One car uh, like you say because of the, the drag and the downforce it's 1G of braking just by lifting off the throttle so just to put it into perspective you know a road car next to a formula one car the road car's doing an emergency stop as hard as you can brake abs chattering away and everything and that's a formula one car just lifting off and yeah there's plenty of people who like you say handy drives or driven much lower formulas or other racing cars and uh, i think colin mccray said it when he test drove the jordan back in the mid 90s he said you know it wasn't the the grip the acceleration you know the engine you get used to that the first time it's uh, it's entertaining and, and after a few goes at it it becomes normal but he said it was the brakes it, it was just really tricky to get your head around how late you can break into the corner without locking up and it's that that mm. thinking time of being able to only have two or three tenths of a second between braking and turning in to work out what it is you've got to do and i think yeah the the cornering grip most people can get there or thereabouts fairly quickly you know if if a corner's flat out turn into it flat out that's that's about it if you can go through it at 180 you go through it at 180 and and that's it but yeah the uh, the brakes definitely but how far do we think he's going to go you know i remember watching schumacher break all these records and he retired stroke was forced out and and you come to well that's that you know that's never going to be beaten surely it's it's looking too competitive in the future or even that run you know the rule changes and things like that but what do we think he's gonna he's gonna do eight isn't he because he's gonna win it next year because everything's staying pretty much the same so but what do we think nine ten i think he'll carry on going until he realizes 
that he isn't at the same peak that he's at now because to this point he's he's either been consistent or been improving is it fair to say that he's been relatively untouchable in terms of where he's got to there's lots of people that have that've battled him but like you say when you're able to to push forward with that much of a lead yes it's, it'd be good to go on a high but at what point do you decide that you need to stop does it get boring if you're permanently at the front and you're sort of just running rings around everyone where's the challenge anymore i mean after a while you're just gonna be sitting there why i don't need to do this yeah get a couple more in the bag to sort of put it even further out of the way of schumacher's record which in itself is amazing the fact that he's got Mm. to where he's got but i i think after a couple more i just think i don't need to do this anymore i think i'm just going to go home and count all my um swiss francs and just do what I want to do. And you think you'd do and Ronnie do O'Sullivan? The, well, I don't think it'd be quite that extreme. But yeah, I, I think he'll just go, do you know what? I don't need this anymore. I've got more money than I know what to do with. I've had every challenge in the book and I've beaten it. He'll go off and do the things like he's been doing, you know, the off-road, the electric off-roady thing. Then mm. why not? Go go and go and do something else. Go and prove yourself in other areas. He's obviously got a talent for being good at stuff. Go and do it in another one and let someone else have a go. Well, it's, yeah, where, where does the, the challenge come from? Uh, I mean, you can do it for the love of driving. You know, Kimmy frequently says he just loves driving cars, and that's it. I think this has probably been his, his most enjoyable year because he's been allowed to stay away from people. The paddock hasn't been full of media and press and guests and bits and pieces like that so he hasn't had to talk to anyone all year he just turns up you know wear a mask sunglasses hat cover your face up stay away from people drive the car and go home that's it and i I think that suits him down to the ground but ultimately you know driving a racing car that fast is fun so if you're enjoying it why not but yeah like you say how, how many years can you do it can you do the same thing for at the same odd tracks, you know, next year's calendar is is twenty odd tracks, and we're back to um, the uh, the tracks of a few years ago. You know, I really enjoyed this year going back to some of the classic tracks or unexpected tracks, and and you know, seeing F one cars around Mugello and, and Imola was fascinating to watch. And then you look at the calendar next year; it's, oh, it's the same thing again. And then we're off to um, Saudi Arabia, and probably without lapsing into that political area, uh, you know. It does that excite you as a Formula One driver? You know, if you've driven Spa and Silverstone and Monza and Imola, tracks like that, you know, does another street circuit, 90 left, 90 right, 90 left, 90 right, pass a really expensive hotel, oh, look, the floodlights are on, you know, is, is that exciting anymore? Probably not. But yeah, mm. I, I think you're right. Get get to 10-ish, he'll certainly break 100 wins next year. So yeah, 100 plus wins eight or nine world championships that that'll probably do won't it that's that's a good run i guess the other thing is you know it's it's the and i guess it's the same thing if you're you're a fighter pilot for example you know if you're flying a a fighter jet there's nothing that you can do after doing that that's going to compare to what you're doing you can fly a plane but you're never going to fly something that's like you're never going to be able to afford to own your own fighter jet probably Goodness knows, I suppose Lewis could probably buy a fighter jet. Ah, but that's that's bad for uh, for carbon emissions, so he wouldn't do oh, that. Oh yes, really. you're right. But when, yeah. but when you've been driving a Formula One car, which is at the very top, as to where you can go, is that where do you go above that? That that is that's the next thing. Is it what is the next thing? Is there another world left to conquer at this point? It's well, is it that, or is it a, a completely? different discipline so the uh, the off-road thing does he go rallying just for that that different challenge but then there's maybe mm. a risk there that, that if he did do rallying in a competitive format 
you know, whether it was a national, international or world rally championship, is is there a risk of a damage to your legacy there? I mean, Jensen Button mm. in the British D- GT championship, you know, that that's a really, really big risk for a Formula One world champion to turn up there because it'll look great on the Twitter bio of, of any of the other drivers who happen to be there if they finish in front of him. And if, uh, if I'd have been there and finished up, you know, that would be first thing in my Twitter bio that you once beat a Formula One world champion. Why not? But it's the, just for the fun of it, I think he was doing it and he missed racing and, and wanted to crack on with it. So why not? I, I must have, I don't think I can see Lewis doing stuff like that in, in the same way I can't see Sebastian Vettel when he retires. I think he will just disappear totally, but then he's a different animal. He prefers a quiet life and family life. You know, he doesn't do social media. He doesn't produce music or design clothes, or I say clothes in inverted commas, <laughs> garments that are stapled or glued to his body or whatever else in a fetching range of colours. You know, horses for courses, I think. So it would be fascinating to watch anyway. So it's always entertaining. Well, I mean, you mentioned before that you think he's perhaps the best sportsman that, that, that the country's ever produced. But if you think about someone, in my mind, I think Jim Clark is potentially a better driver in terms of, not necessarily in terms of winning Formula One world champions, but in terms of how adaptable he was to be able to drive anything. Oh, yeah, there's no, no, no doubt in my mind at all. Jim Clark is the best driver to ever walk the face of this planet. Anything he, he won in anything. And everything. Yeah, yeah, and and just a, f- a phenomenal driver. But if you think about how people have transferred into other sports, and it doesn't always work quite so well, does it? I mean, if you think about Mark uh, Blundell, Blundell, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Let's say Blundell, because otherwise it sounds like Brundle, so it's easy to get Blundell and Brundle. It would be very easy to get the two mixed up. It has to be said. Um, but yeah, a very um, difficult year for him in BTCC. When we saw him behind the, the wheel of that Audi S3, I think we were expected fantastic things as he was, what, Formula One and Le Mans, wasn't he? Yes, he had a he had quite a varied career, Mark Blundell. And uh, there was a stint as well after Formula One where he went to the States and took part in IndyCar racing where he did pretty well, I think. He was, wasn't just making up the numbers, though I think... I'm right in saying that his career came to a bit of a nasty stop when he had a nasty off at a, an oval race and went speared straight into the wall at practically 90 degrees. Yeah, didn't he? I think he, he smashed his spine to pieces in a few places, etc. It was one of the... He yeah, was being interviewed. Yeah, yeah, I snapped my back in nine places, but it was all fine. It's all good now. And it's, you know, okay, I'm all right. Fine, fair enough. Crack, crack on. They're made, um, of, but yeah, they're made that... of sterner stuff than us. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> The uh, yeah, the the translation is whether it's just types of car or the grip or feeling you know downforce etc. You can be very good in in tin tops or rallying where there's uh, much less downforce. But Formula One and, and aero cars are a different animal to get your head around altogether. Um, mm. But I, to be fair, we see it in um, in Formula One as well. You know Vettel and how untouchable he was in the blown diffuser era, and you look at how. Weber struggled with the same thing. Yeah, I would imagine if you put both Weber and Vettel in, let's say, rally cars or race of champions cars, something like that, it would maybe be a, a little bit closer. So that's why race of champions is always quite entertaining to watch because you get some drivers going up against multiple Formula One world champions and beating them, some relatively unknown drivers. And it's nice to, to see what they can do in, in a different car or in, uh, in equal machinery against the greats. Sure, and Mark Webber, though, you mentioned Mark Webber. 
he's a, a phenomenal multi multidiscipline driver. He 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 can make many things very fast and consistently, as we we obviously know. Well, he had um, quite a lot of experience in in Le Mans, didn't he? I think it was mm. him that famously cartwheeled that Mercedes on the Mulsanne that uh, did its sort of complete three sixty barrel roll. That was that was Weber, wasn't it? I think or was it Weber not? crashed his uh, in? Was it qualifying yeah, it was or we- practice? Yeah, I think one crashed in one, and one uh, Dumbreck wasn't it crashed in Dumbreck, uh, the other Dumb, one. Yeah, yeah they, they both went over. I think Weber's accident was slightly less horrific. Uh, I think Dumbreck's was the was the worst accident. But um, yeah, although mm-hmm. as Weber said, if uh, if you're going to race cars, you're going to crash cars. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think D- Dumbreck though. I mean, he 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 was incredibly lucky, wasn't he? Funnily enough, I watched um, Le Mans sixty six last weekend, which is. A fantastic film to watch in terms of the the way that it's shot and, and edited together, and it, it is it, it's a great film. It's a great watch, regardless of how entirely accurate it is. All these things, as we know, all all these masterpieces, they're always in the editing, aren't they? So, well, I think that's it. Always in the editing. I, I think there's there's an interesting view of Ford Motor Company, which uh, well, I'll leave you to make your own mind up as to whether or not that's entirely true or not. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, very very interesting. Um, a, a, a really great film but afterwards um, my wife and I we sat down and looked at bits and pieces from Le Mans because it's been a few years since since I've been 2015 that's when I was last there and I was explaining a, about the Mercedes taking off and being sort of lamppost height uh, but landed quite miraculously in soft soil and thankfully the right way up so he managed to, to walk away which is which is crazy when you see the crash you, you, you'd instantly think it was fatal wouldn't you but yeah 218, 220, whatever, however many miles an hour you get down the back of the Mulsanne straight. Um, obviously, a bit slower now as a result of having a chicane in the way. But yeah, just just mad. I think, was it Derek Bell that was saying that you kind of got a bit desensitised to it? Because you were doing it over and over again and you'd be, you'd be hacking along and just adjusting your gloves and just making sure that everything was just right and you were comfortable. <laughs> 200, 200 plus miles an hour. Yeah, and then I think didn't he say as well that the drive home from the track was always entertaining as well because you'd be sat on the motorway so you're doing 170 miles an hour, <laughs> just just thinking you're tootling along without really paying attention. It's amazing how your perceptions change. Yeah, and you get that, don't you? I mean, far less extreme example, but when it's when you come off, you've been on the motorway for hours, and you come off to go into the services, <laughs> and you're you're entering the services and you think, bloody, I'm doing 50. <laughs> you just don't realise, just don't realise how fast you're going. That's why I quite like that uh, that random services we uh, we found on the way back from somewhere that appears to have an indoor go kart track That's as mad. the entry into the car park. It's hilarious. It's a couple of Where sweeping cambered left and right handers with a little hairpin and then a short yes. straight into like another quick section. left. It's fantastic. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, it, it was honestly like a little circuit. I, I forget where it is now. I'm sure someone will write in and tell us or tweet us. All of those things, you know where we are. Twitter, you could you could take a photo of it. Instagram, whatever. But we'll, we will find that, and we will bring you that useful piece of uh, consumer advice, motoring advice, because uh, it, it was exceptional. It was unexpected, and it was a delight to find after sitting on a boring bit of motorway. Has to be said. Coming up next week, reports of multiple crashes as motoring enthusiasts gather in interesting service station. I quite like the uh, the novelty of turning up at Heston Services and them sort of relieving you of a mortgage for half a tank of fuel. Have you ever been there? It's the most expensive services anywhere in Britain. It has to be. It's unbelievably pricey. Which uh, which one is that? Heston. Heston <laughs> Services on the M4 on the way out or the way into London as as you come in towards Brentford and that direction. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, I think I know the one. Yeah, I think I that 
that might be the one where I pulled up once, took, and you know, I, the the light had come on a few miles previous, so I, I was sort of skating around one or two miles to empty, uh, and I think that's the one where I, I sort of pretty much came to the conclusion that actually I'd rather break down because I'd run out of fuel, walk for an hour to a nearer <laughs> petrol station and buy a can and walk back to the car than pay those prices. So I think I did end up turning off the motorway, heading into the nearest town, and I think, yeah, I think I paid... 40p a litre less i think it was it was well in excess of one pound 60 on the motorway uh when when fuel prices were a little bit higher than they are now but yeah it's, yeah in the same money I, I just thought it was That's the law you couldn't put more than a tenner in uh in motorway services because it would otherwise ruin you no I'm, I'm normally yeah tenner maximum and it will get me to the next place but this yeah it could well have been that one actually it was just yeah i was so outraged at the price that went somewhere and, else we know how they normally have the they have the minimum delivery two liters. They actually have minimum minimum input fifty quid, which is basically <laughs> probably amount to the same sort of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, obscene. Well, at the moment, of course, we have other choices, and you can roll off into a different place and and fill your car up. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens when we're all humming around because that's kind of what they do in electric cars when uh, when our normal uh, internal combustion engine ice cars are are killed off in 2030 and the hybrids in 2035. I really hope manufacturers have got the hang of being able to plug them in without them catching fire by then. It would be yes. really useful. Yes, as we, as, we, uh, <laughs> as we're bitterly aware. Uh, <laughs> regular listeners to the podcast will understand that we have some mm, personal experience with these uh, these a certain type of vehicle catching fire uh, and the headaches that that has we, caused. We, we did come up with a, uh, a good marketing campaign earlier, didn't we? Because we're we looking at sponsoring a breakfast radio show so we thought ah actually we could start with the uh, the noise that your cereal makes when you pour the milk on it you know that crackly crackly noise and say is this the sound of your cereal or is this the sound of your new plug-in hybrid on the drive just to go for that oh is, oh, is it the car on fire is that my cereal i'm not sure yes yeah, a lovely little pop and crackle that you get yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um but yeah is it going to be the case that when we pull into the motorway services that our kilowatt hours are suddenly going to become much more expensive because we've got no other choice but to fuel up there. They are already. I think the uh, the top way, if you're unlucky enough to be stuck with, uh, I think it's Ionity. Mm. Uh, somebody worked out if if you don't if you weren't a subscriber or a member or whatever, and you just sort of went on a pay-as-you-go tariff. You know, they did say this is the most expensive way of doing it, and realistically, you'd probably never do it. But I think it was the equivalent of driving a car that did eighteen miles per gallon because of the cost of the electricity, <laughs> which is uh, yeah a, a little bit odd, but. I don't know, I almost think that, that charging when out and about in, in publicly accessible charges does need to be somewhat expensive to stop people using and abusing them or using that as their only method of charging or leaving them there for longer than they need to. No, you see, I, I don't um, necessarily agree because I think a lot of people won't have an electric car because they can't charge it up somewhere publicly cheaply enough. Mm. But by saying, if you break down, sort of go back to that, you're not going to be able to go and get yourself a can of electricity, are you, and stick it in the car? So you are going to uh, no, be stuck. I, I, I can see a big future in in large articulated lorries carrying massive diesel generators on the back of them, driving around giving people somewhere to plug their car in. So, but hey, as long as there's no emissions from the tailpipe. <laughs> For the benefit of the tape, 
Andrew's currently winding up his torch uh, to give us an idea of how we can possibly power a car. I mean, you need a lot of pedals in a car, wouldn't you? And people cycling furiously for it to move. The, the AA now do have jumper, booster, whatever you want to call them, packs in, in some of their vans. So they can go out and plug you in, leave you plugged in for however long it might take to get just enough to get you going, half an hour, whatever it might be. And away you can trundle, but... Yeah, and I don't know. let's face it, people aren't just going to be breaking down left, right and centre on the motorway because they've run out of, of electricity because there's so many warnings and so many beeps and bongs and things that tell you that you're going to be running low on, on electricity. But certainly it's, it's possible that motorway service station would be your only place that you could get that when you're driving somewhere. So well, I think a lot of them are, are better set up for it because they've, they've naturally got a bigger cable of electricity running into them or if they haven't got that cable in the first place it's probably easier to put in as long as you can approach it from the correct side of the motorway you don't want to be uh, paying to dig up the m25 to put a bigger cable in because that would get expensive but uh, yeah also it's on the chargers being connected to a network that the car's sat nav is connected to so as you're plotting your route it knows which chargers are available which chargers are working when you'll need to stop or okay i know that that one that one and that one aren't working but if i tell you to stop at that one albeit maybe a few miles earlier and make sure you charge to 80 percent you've then got enough to get where you're going so i think a lot of it is probably just as reliant on the the flow of information and the calculations rather than the the actual battery technology itself or the infrastructure it's knowing that that charger is going to work when you get there and that's the big question mark GCSE questions are being rewritten that way as we speak, probably. If you start your journey with 80% and you want to get to Bristol, where do you want to stop? Zachary has a fast charger, whereas Amit only has a medium speed charger, etc. Calculate the velocity of the turnip. And there is a leaf already parked in the space. If you have three friends, each capable of lifting 125 kilos each... How many more people will you need to remove the Nissan Leaf from the charging spot? <laughs> or at what point did the government decide that they ought to build a few more power stations to cater for all these new electric cars that are now on our roads and that are all queuing up to try and get electricity that isn't there because there aren't any power stations? They're going to have to do something about that. The fact is that we're shutting power stations quicker than we're building new ones we're all going to be sat there waiting at three phase mains chargers in the next sort of 15 to 20 years somebody at some point is going to have to provide the means of supply in order to keep those things going and at the moment getting it from magic moonbeams doesn't seem to be the option um windmills uh, they're too expensive um it's going to have to be um it's going to have to be nuclear power stations and then you've got all the arguments against them and all the future of digging up the ground to put the remains of what was generated by those power stations they're certainly not going to be coal again and gas well i don't know i can't see that so where's the power going to come from would be my question they have green lighted a nuclear power station the other day as part of the range of measures they announced they would be building another one or two nuclear power stations, didn't they? They've had several planned on and off for some years now, um, a lot of them funded by foreign investment, which is a bit of a concern. Not to go into too much of the, the politics of the problems, but uh, allowing foreign control over over UK power seems to be a bit of a, a, bit of a worry for some. Well, as long as it's not a European investment, we'll be OK. <laughs> I think we do need to think about where this power is coming from. I know that everyone wants it to be from green sources, and that might be from 
from air or sea or whatever it's going to be. And I think we also need to think about what this is ultimately going to cost because we know that you can't have free road tax on cars going forward because, well, it's such a big source of revenue from the government, even if they only spend 25, 26, or whatever percentage it is on the actual roads themselves. So I know that they, this week the government have considered a number of different uh, measures, including if they can charge per mile. We've said before, maybe you could put it onto the cost of fuel so you pay for what you use. And I guess it's the same kind of thing, uh, assuming it's reasonable and you don't pay road tax as well and fuel duty as well, whichever way they decide to do it. But I think one of the things that will make a big difference in, in times to come and uh, Jim and I were sat earlier on in a, a conference listening to a uh, listening about the launch of an electric car, which we can't tell you about at the moment because it's embargoed. But we were sat there, we we're looking at the cost of running one of these cars and what comes as part of the package when when you buy one. And I think that as these cars are getting closer and closer in terms of their speed and what they do and the equipment they're in, what become more and more important is what do you get in terms of free electricity or reduced electricity when you're out and about as part of the package? Because manufacturers now, if you think about Tesla, the sort of the rapid charging you could get from whilst you're, whilst you're out about Tesla, this used to be free for life with a lot of the cars and isn't now. There will be subscriber services, or at least it, I believe it's not free now, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but there will be lots of cars that will need lots of uh, electricity in there. What an incentive that would be if you go to, I don't know, Peugeot, for example, just to choose a manufacturer, and they said, you get free rapid charging, fast charging, or it's half price for you when you buy our car. It comes as part of the package. Suddenly, it becomes a very good deal, doesn't it? Uh, well, it does, but there's a, there's a whole other question over fuel duty and the revenue that way and that's that's quite easy because it all gets charged when it leaves the depot um, and it's a very efficient way of gathering a lot of money very quickly and it works surprisingly well the more miles you do the more fuel you use so the more you pay or the more inefficient your car is the more you use so the more you pay that's that's fine how do you go about charging per mile for electricity though because if you've got it plugged in at home i think that's why home chargers that get installed have to be smart and connected etc so they know that those kilowatts used were to power your car as opposed to those kilowatts were used to power your fridge or your kettle because it's certainly not fair to whack up the cost of electricity because you might not have an electric car you might not drive at all but you don't want to pay more to boil water for a cup of tea just because everybody's driving around in electric cars do you mm. how many miles can you do to a cup of tea that's the question i guess yeah it's yes, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Really, and what really gets me worried, and whilst we're we're talking about the sort of the petrol ban, is what is going to happen to all of our enthusiast cars. Now, all of us sat here are petrol heads. We all love our cars. I'm not saying that we don't love electric cars, and sure, that's a great way of being able to get around daily. I'm sure, certainly if you're in cities or running around locally. But for those of us that like to own a normal combustion engine car. And it is getting more expensive. Let's face it, the Mini's road tax is 330 quid a year now, which is a lot for a, a small car. What's going to happen to those? Are we going to be taxed off the roads? Is, is there going to be a, an allowance for cars when they get to a certain age like there currently is, where we can say that they're an enthusiast car or are they going to be restricted for the amount of miles they can do? I mean, oh, it, it, it'll be a gradual process. They'll, the internal combustion cars on the road will just drop off and drop off and drop off. but enthusiasts all keep their pride and joys running so just as we still have cars built in 
the 1910s, 20s, 30s still driving around, not, not in daily use, but certainly in use or at shows or historic racing, etc. They'll keep them going. But I think it was, I did hear a, a stat the other day. If we, at one point, did we have more horses, was it 50 years ago, whatever it was, than when horses were the main method of transportation and moving people and goods around? You know, we have more horses on the planet now than when we actually use them for something. You know, they're a plaything of the rich or the moderately less impoverished, and, and I think internal combustion engine cars will go that way as well. But to be fair, the last track day we were on, there was a, a guy there in a Tesla, and he looked to be having just as much fun as anyone else. Um, yes, that was quick so, in a straight line, wasn't it? That was really quick. I mean, you could bother uh, him through oh, yeah, the corners, yeah. but my oh, God, yeah. when he got the oh, straight, yeah. gone. You could outbreak him and, uh, and yeah, hang on to him, yeah, especially through the, uh, the quicker corners where its weight did show. But, yeah, as soon as you got to the exit of the corner, you couldn't stay with it. But, it seemed weird to see it on a track, though, it has to be said. Well, I think we didn't see him on a track for that long, actually, because he was sort of scratching his head, plugging it in at lunch break, and he didn't go out much after that, so I think he had came the battery fairly well. Yeah, yeah. it was but plugged in, in the garage, I was impressed by. Just, yeah, <laughs> just straight into the old like, camper van yeah, socket. Well, yes. Yeah, straight into the commando socket. That's, that's absolutely ideal, because, you know, a racetrack, it's got lots of infrastructure there for race teams that run generators and tools and hospitality units and fridges and cookers etc all weekend long but I, I think probably the the next big leap will be it needs to be a smaller battery and one that can be swapped out quickly that's that's the key because then if those batteries can be charged and transported or trickle charged somewhere at a much slower rate but they're readily available for you to swap out you know if you've got a, a battery that weighs 10 15 20 kilos but that's enough to do 200 miles well that's a very easy swap at the side of the road or at a an establishment similar to a petrol station drive in swap your batteries and off you go that also make it a lot easier to charge at home as well if you haven't got a driveway uh, or a charging point outside you have a couple of batteries and charge them inside but there's some way to go on the battery tech for that yet i think well i think this is possibly going to be the future of sort of mass refueling in the electric age really is i think i I mentioned this few episodes back this just basically establishments where you turn up one battery swapped out for the next one and on you go and then it's charged for the next person because i can't see how it's going to work where you've got these chargers that are taking anything up to 40 50 minutes to get a meaningful charge into a car whereas you've got a free flow at the moment of cars coming through a forecourt filling up with fuel and gone in five minutes you're going to have people queuing to stick their car on the wire and I, I, unless they vastly expand petrol stations and service areas, I can't quite see at the minute with current technology and obviously 10, 15 years down the line, this will probably be something totally different. You'll be charging on RF as you drive along the roads. The whole roads will be wired and you charge as you go. That's the ultimate aim, I guess. But I can't see how it's going to work as things stand. I think there's, I think they're being particularly optimistic as i think it was gordon murray said this week and there's a visionary for you if if gordon murray is saying that this 2030 2035 cutoff is uh is optimistic then i think i know who i would trust out of him and the present incumbents in westminster but don't get me started on that <laughs> well i think no you're quite right but it's it's all well and good to set a target of uh, oh yeah we're gonna do this so we we can be nice and green but like you say where's the the infrastructure i mean the the current bat flu pandemic roaming around a couple of three or four <laughs> different companies have come up with vaccines the only problem is that one of them uh i think you know it needs to be stored at 
was it minus 50 degrees? Well, it was 100 and something. Or was it minus 100? Yeah, yeah and you, it's ridiculous. The, yeah. the freezer, you can only open the freezer for a minute, an hour, uh, which is a logistical problem. It's also a logistical problem actually transporting the thing because how do you transport that and move it around and keep it that cold? You know, you can't. When I moved house and we moved my chest freezer, we just kept the lid on and chucked it in the back of the van, drove relatively swiftly to the new place, and that kept it cold enough. But, you know, a pizza slightly defrosting around the edges is uh, is very different to this vaccine. But it, it does kind of go back again. You know, we've had plenty and plenty of years of education and and graduates and new job entrants wanting to look at websites and marketing and apps and coding and computers and things like that. And I think all of a sudden we're lacking in the, the physical infrastructure for things. Uh, again, it's uh, it's all well and good coming up with the idea, but practically delivering it is uh, mm. yeah is entirely another thing, as you say. There's no doubt that um, cars are still too slow to charge, and the embargo bargo that we were talking about earlier on today, when you plug that thing into the mains to get to an eighty percent charge, took thirty six hours through a granny charger. Um, its its <laughs> range being about three hundred miles. When you plug it into uh, a wall socket it was about 10 hours wasn't it to charge it the same sort of uh, distance yeah, so fine that's, if you I mean, stopped that, overnight that, that is yeah that is absolutely fine you you'd have to plug in you know if you were a a two car household you know you'd you don't you still only need one charger for that it's not like you need one for each car that's the next issue we've got of course as well there's plenty of cars have adopted uh one ev one petrol car so they might have a uh you know a smaller car a leaf or zoe whatever it is for the school run the shopping and things like that and a bigger you know family car for long trips weekends away uh etc but any minute now that's going to be two electric cars in the household so will you need two chargers but I, if you can charge it to 300 odd miles in 10 hours then that's probably okay to share a charging point mm. between you and the missus isn't it one question I yeah, did hear well, yesterday was what about uh, things like caravanning and uh, pulling trailers and bits that if you were actually going... You shouldn't be doing that anyway. Well, so. Probably not. But if you're going for any distance, <laughs> how many of these electric mm. cars have any anywhere near the right amount of oomph and range to take your heavy caravan anywhere? Well, I did well, say I, I'm redoing my um, lounge. So I went to go and, uh, and get all the laminate flooring measured it all up and worked out how much I needed, etc. And it turns out it, it was volumetrically identical to the boot and back seats with the seats down of a BMW 330e. It was stacked to the gunnels, this thing. It uh, it made it look very stanced at the back and, uh, and nice and low, but it still pulled like a train because electric cars have got all the torque in the world, you see. So. They do, but they can't necessarily tow, and this is a problem. So the transit tornado whatever it is that's sold to us as a lifestyle vehicle which has a battery and then uh, a little eco boost engine as a range extender that can't tow so fantastic it just can't i don't know why but it cannot tow it, it just says that this is a unfortunate drawback of the vehicle you can't tow anything with it that's stupid isn't it well, yes i mean so we're going to have greener roads and roads with less caravans i'm sure that's a real problem uh, that's a, yeah, no, that's uh, not a bad thing is it <laughs> but if you want something like that, you want something that's electric and able to tow your race car along behind you, or perhaps your other car that's electric that's run out of juice. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> ah, may- maybe that's the future. Maybe it'll be you'll uh, tow your petrol engine car around on the back of a trailer on the back of your electric car and, yeah, swap them over. It certainly sounds efficient, but 
Who knows? I mean, there is one thing that's certain, though. Electric cars are getting cheaper, and although they are still pretty expensive to buy, a decent, exciting electric car is still about 60 grand, isn't it, there or thereabouts? If you think about a um, Model 3 performance with the exciting engine battery, is 3. Point, whatever you want to call it, motor and battery, 3.1 seconds or so, that's about 56 grand, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but how, how much money do you need to spend on an internal combustion car to get that sort of performance. I mean, that's Aerial Atom, Porsche 911, GT, RS, whatever it is, you know, Bugatti, Ferrari levels of performance. So actually a, a cooking spec one. I mean, the uh, yes, the, the embargoed vehicle that we can't talk about, uh, I think that the normal spec, you know, normal engine, lower, normal engine, normal motor, lower power, 0-60 in 8 seconds or whatever it is, that, that starts a bit cheaper and that's 40-odd. It's a still bit a lot cheaper, of money, though. but it's a big 40 car. 40-odd is yeah. a lot of money. And this is the thing, isn't it? And if you want to go for the the basic Model 3, it's 46. If you want to go for an I-Pace or something similar, that's 60-odd again. So they aren't necessarily in the realms of your everyday driver, someone who goes and buys a Focus. Yeah, but a, a, Ford, a Ford Focus is 30 grand these days, and yeah. that's a... I won't say a better car, but it's a bigger car or a better appointed car. And the uh, the 330 will be a hybrid 330e estate that I spec'd up the other day was 58. So uh, cars just are expensive these days. That's it. But they have become more democratised. As we said in the last podcast, the ID3, which is quite interesting, that's about 30 grand. You can buy an MG5, that's whatever it is, 21 grand, or in real money, that's 180 cheap, pounds a month. It it's really cheap. If you want a car, fine. Um, but still compared to a petrol equivalent, they're not as cheap. Let's let's agree on that at least. But you and I stopped at a place that sold used cars and we looked at a Zoe, which they had on the front, which is a relatively interesting, relatively funky, small electric car. And that was what, about seven grand. So that is a sensible used car buy sort of money. The wonderful thing about lockdown is wonder. Is lockdown's a wonderful thing. Lockdown's a wonderful thing. Quote, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, it does give you time to go and sit and spend even more time on the internet than you ought to do, really. And uh, I I do spend. I get the emails every day. I don't spend any money. I spend time. That's all I can afford to spend these days. On bring a trailer and um, Doug Demuro's new thing, cars and bids, which are uh, uh, American predominantly. Well, cars and bids definitely an American only. Um, sort of car auction sort of collect a car interesting car website thing bring a trailer's been around for a bit longer and they've always had interesting things on there and one that really caught my eye this week was this 1994 alfa romeo 164 that's popped up in the states now the alfa 164 was a bit of a weird collaboration back in the the late 80s i think it was between the Fiat Group, so there was the Fiat Chroma, whatever happened to that, the Alpha 164, and the Saab 9000, and they were all basic, and yeah, that was it, just the three, and they were all spun off this same basic, same floor pan type thing, and they all went in different directions to try and make their own take on this this sort of thing and uh, Saab famously basically threw away about 90% of it <laughs> of the Italian stuff saying that's crap that's never going to survive a collision with an elk so uh, leave it with us we'll make our own you go and play with your own 
if you'll pardon the pun. Anyway, this one cropped up. It's an Alpha 164, a really nice one, one of the very last by the looks of it. Now, the Alpha 164 was that sort of very straight-edged, very of its time, very mafia staff car, particularly in black, looking at the one I'm seeing here. And it was sold in the States. This was one of the last cars that they sold in the USA before they pulled out um, 20-odd years ago, 25, 30 years ago, probably even. But this one surfaced, and it's one of the really rare Q4s, the Cloverleaf Q4, which is the V6 engine, which is exactly what you want, uh, manual transmission, and also four-wheel drive. And uh, never sold in the States, these. This one came in apparently via Japan and then Germany, or Germany and then Japan, it says here. And uh, it's been snapped up by somebody because it's it's sold along. It doesn't say how much it's sold for, but... Um, Oh, it went, there you go. It went for $19,500, which is pretty good going. I mean, given how rare mm. it is over there, it's always going to attract a fair bit of enthusiast interest. And a lot more of these cars are now finding their way over to the States under the, um, we mentioned it before, the 25-year rule, which means yes. that cars over 25 years old can be legally imported without having to go through all the federalization process that um, cars have to have if they're younger than that. This is the reason why the Skyline was illegal, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and they found a, a bit of a sort of grey import loophole that was very quickly shut down. So I think they only existed. The it was the 34, I think, wasn't it? R34. The R34. Yep. It crept in for a couple of years until somebody went, right, now that's it. Stop. Stop having fun. You can't do that anymore. So the ones that got in are still there, but they, there will never be any more, at least not for the next sort of 10 or 15 years or however long it is they've got left. But a lot of interesting stuff is ending up over there. A lot of 205 GTIs, rather worryingly, are ending up back in the States now because they can have them. I've seen Fiat Barquettas have ended up over there. And UK and, well, more European market um, Land Rover Defenders are very popular. They, They ship them out there. And they do all sorts of things to them, like um, basically overhaul them, put LED lighting on them and, and make them the sort of thing the Americans want to buy. And they will pay top dollar for them. And you see them coming up every single day. There's another Defender on Bring a Trailer. But this Alpha really um, got my attention because it just I've always loved these things. And uh, I thought it's the wrong side of the Atlantic for me. And it's the wrong side of $19,500 that I don't have. But uh, were I in the market and were I over there, I would have been bidding on that. I've seen a a bit of a run on um, 205 GTIs on collecting cars website as well. Mm, That's also brilliant. Aren't Peugeot remaking that? After we said this in the last podcast, I did read up, actually, they're taking the old ones, doing them up, and then selling them back to you, rather than making new ones, that they're actually doing up old ones. Oh, that's it. Oh, it's a, a ground up restoration. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're refurbishing. Well, interestingly enough, actually, this this is uh, this is going to be a, a world first on UK Motor Talk. What's, what's actually going to happen now is I'm going to show a car to Gates, and I think... As it ends in 20 minutes and 19 seconds, uh, I think Gates is probably actually going to buy this live, I think. Oh, let's have a look. <laughs> flick, the, uh, flick the camera around. Oh, it's there a DeLorean! Oh my god, it's a DeLorean. How much is it? $31,000. That seems to be pretty good, doesn't it? Let's have a look. So, the, the good news is... Uh, so let's, uh, it's in <sighs> Arizona. How, how far is Arizona from California? It's not a million miles away, is it? Yeah, dry state as well. Right. So what what will what we're going to do, listeners, live on uh, live on air is Gates is going to buy that, and then I can send my sister to uh, to go and pick it up, 
she lives in America, um, and just look after it until uh, such a time as you're allowed to fly over there and arrange to get it shipped back. Well, in fact, you can you can buy a nude lorry, can't you? In uh, over in over in America, uh, and an electric nude lorry poten- uh, potentially as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm the rustling that you can hear at the moment is just me finding my uh, finding my credit card. Uh, out of my, of my wallet here so I can hold it up so that Jim can punch the numbers in ready uh, and we'll see see if we can win that card just uh, just read them out to me it'll be fine okay yep yeah. so uh, if you're listening hang, hang on at... let me get a pen hang on alright okay it's uh, <laughs> 5566 oh that's no, a company card best not use that one um, yeah why why not it, the temptation is real uh, and just in case you're wondering which alpha it is we were talking about if you try to picture in your head it's one of the sort of square boxy ones that um it came about obviously before the one five, uh, the one five six, and all the rest of it. Uh, but yeah, really, the sort of the boxy, square, cool-looking, as you say, mafia-type card. Very, mm. very but, cool, very edgy. I think it was Gigiaro. I think it was designed. I could be wrong. He did. Oh, Pininfarina. Sorry, Pininfarina. Silly me. Who else? <laughs> Who else? Indeed. Uh, not not everything they designed was beautiful, but certainly that is a good-looking car. Oh, we've been shown a Mark II Golf now. There are lots of really interesting cars. That's an import. That's not an American spec one. That's an import, he said, putting his anorak on. How's that for a vanity plate, though, Mark II? I think it works differently in terms of the plates in America because I think, relatively speaking, you can choose what you want it to say and then you just submit it and then they'll tell you if that one's available or what they can get to it that's close. I know a couple of guys with Aston Martins in one of the groups that I'm in that have a BMT 816 number, much like, uh, as you probably remember, the DB5 in James Bond. So they've got relatively close to it, but it doesn't seem to have to spend the big money that uh, that you do over here to get a relatively exclusive plate. These, These kind of sites are really, really interesting to look at. What's also really interesting is how they treasure in America some of the cars that over here aren't worth a huge amount and vice versa. So some of the stuff over there that's not worth a lot is worth a fair chunk over here. Oddly, my shape mini, which the cheapest ones of those in this country now are still sitting, you know, for a, a reasonably drivable one at about fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds. Over there, you're looking at least twice that for the same type of car. So it is different over there as it is to here. But if you are interested in this country, looking at something you can buy in this country, as Jim's already said, collecting cars is a really interesting place to go, and there's a lot of temptation in there. It is the proverbial sweet shop window isn't it you look you look at the things oh, i really want that that seems like such good value really really interesting stuff on there well t- just sorry while i'm just thinking it here i've just flicked past i completely forgot about this something else i found on the the other source of dangerous stuff when you've got your credit card in your hand ebay an interesting range rover classic a n-reg it's uh okay it's only done only done stratospheric miles but uh it's got the interesting history of having been used by the uh, counter-revolutionary warfare department of the SAS for uh, much of the 90s. And it's one of the uh, the unmarked ones that they used to tool around in that to all intents and purposes look like every other one. But uh, we're also equipped with mounting points for various ladders and things to uh, enable them to crash into this week's embassy. But it's up for 9995, undrivable, unMOT'd, needs welding. You try and find another Range Rover Classic for 9995 that needs all that crap doing to it. It's still got <laughs> things like 
let me see. Still, it's got a full roll cage, infrared light toggle fitted. Don't leave home without one, folks. Uh, it's also got the map reading light on the passenger side, always useful, and uh, flashing headlight relay, siren, uh, full oh, grey yeah. leather seats, um, and all the mounting points, all the bits and pieces on the bumpers, as I say, for you to attach various bits of angle iron for uh, assaulting your favourite uh, neighbourhood embassy. It's uh, it's up there at the minute, 9995. And they are really cool, aren't they, Range Rover Classic? Oh, yeah, particularly. These these things come up occasionally, and when they do, mm. they get a lot of interest and they get a lot of money because, you know, people will fall over backwards to have anything associated with the boys in the balaclavas. And uh, it's quite a cool, roughy-tufty thing to have as well, isn't it? It was apparently used as well, reportedly, reportedly, used in London to escort, protect a royal princess and drive Margaret Thatcher while on the old SAS camp. So got some as long as there. Prince Philip hasn't had a go behind the wheel, it's probably okay, isn't it? I quite like the idea of having maybe a resto <laughs> mod, um, like an, an, an original. Yeah. yeah, I reckon that. I reckon that'd be, be be pretty damn cool, to be honest. It would be a cool thing to have. It certainly gives you bragging rights over the your neighbour who's got one. <laughs> yeah, but has yours driven Margaret Thatcher around, and has it crashed through a wall somewhere in Kensington? I once got offered an, an armoured. This this is absolutely every bit as cool of course as, a, as an old Range Rover I once got offered a armoured Ford Mondeo it was, it was <laughs> such, such, such a random car well it, supposedly it was used to transfer people across London they didn't want to be to be seen so it was a, a completely anonymous car it was just a, a standard Mondeo with black plastic door handles and bump strips and hubcaps and everything else Incred- a, a, a much tuned engine um, but armour plating in the doors and in the floor pan, so it could you could take a hand grenade or whatever, bulletproof glass, and it's it's really clever how they do this. And an insignia, funnily enough, I got offered not that long ago, um, where it has like the rear windscreen was there, um, so it's a hatchback, and then there was a bulletproof glass screen that went behind the back seats, uh, and then sort of like a blast shield inside the boot. Um, so if you got hit from behind, you'd be safe inside the cabin. Really, you would never know, apart from the fact that I have massive brakes. Uh, that was a bit of a giveaway because, of course, they're so heavy. Mm. Um, but just so a completely anonymous car. I, just imagine having a crash in that, though. You'd go through anything you hit. <laughs> but why, why would you do all that yeah. to a Mondeo? Why wouldn't you just buy a Volvo Estate? Because they come like that from the factory. That's that's true. Well, I think the ability to withstand a 9mm round, even Volvos are a bit less good at that sort of thing. But there's, there's a company, I think, called Jankel, who do these sorts of things, who do armouring. They're around here somewhere, actually. And they, um, they provide a lot of covert things and... Um, it is quite interesting, like you say, what they can do. There's various levels of protection right up to full-on Donnie Trump spec where it would probably take the thick end of a Russian nuclear warhead to knock it off the side of the road. But they do tend to go for the, the more sort of everyday-looking car because they just don't draw attention for the same reason the police use dark-coloured BMWs and Volkswagen Group cars. They just blend in with everything else, and the armoured one is probably just in case people think, hang on a minute, there's something not quite right. But, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, some of the things that they do convert. A letter has come flooding in, literally flooding in, about a car that I bought back in August after a bit of mayhem and palaver. And 
you will probably know if you've been listening to the podcast for some time uh, that I'm not really an SUV kind of guy. But nevertheless, I've succumbed. Uh, I sold uh, my S3, which I really did like, for a car that I'm told by my wife that I really needed, which is a... I've even forgotten what it is. It's that anonymous. It's a Seat Ateca, which is the same as the Skoda Kerok, which is the same as uh, whatever the Tiguan, VW Tiguan. Tiguan. Yep. And is also the same as an Audi Q3 and pretty much anything that's got an MQB chassis underneath. I thought it was a Corona. No, the Corona's the small one. Ah, that's the okay. Seat Corona. Corona. That's the one. Yes. What's it like? Well, the honest answer is it, it's fine. Uh, it's exactly what, for one of them, for an SUV, it handles relatively well. It goes relatively well and nothing's fallen off of it yet, which is probably a good thing. Also, just to uh, just to point out that you haven't said that it it looks nice or anything, but can you actually remember what it looks like, or no, have you forgotten already no, since you last it drove it? Exactly the same as all of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I know which one it is when you're in a car park is a because it flashes when you press the button, and b because it's got my wife's name written on the front of it. Well, see, I must admit when I was following you the other day, at one point I, I wasn't particularly paying attention to the number plate, and and I think because the the plate that's on it, it's um, not a personalised format, is it? It's a personalised plate, but it's in the same format as uh, it's in the as current format, normal yeah. registration. That's it, current yeah. format. And so I wasn't particularly paying attention. And for about seven miles, I was following somebody and it wasn't you. And then I realised <laughs> that you were about eight cars further up. And it actually, it wasn't even the same model of your car, but it was just another one of them, but either the another one that's one a bit bigger or a bit smaller. And, yes. uh, and yeah, so I overtook it and then caught you up again. So I have noticed something, though. More people let you out when you're driving that than they did if you drive a bright yellow Audi. Who knew? Uh, not quite as many as the people that you're, when you're driving the Mini, but but still, yeah, it's uh, it seems there are less people that hate you, probably because I don't even notice you exist as you sort of slip into anonymity. That would be a, a great armoured car, in fact, because no one would notice it at all, would they? What makes it particularly awkward, though, the fact that you, <laughs> you were following another car is we weren't just in normal cars. You were in the race car at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, sort of, yeah, I latched onto the you... back of this thing and was just merrily trundling along behind it. So the person looking in the rearview mirror would have, just <laughs> would have seen the race car coming along behind them, just thinking, what the hell is this guy doing? Well, I think at one point, I can't actually remember if I was um, behind just attempting to scrub in the new set of tyres that we'd fitted as well. So I think I might have been, to be fair. But not on a public road, of course, on a, on a private driveway that lots of other girls seem to use. We've got to stop people from doing that. What I have been trying to do is add bits to it which it didn't come with, and that has not been entirely successful. I spent quite a considerable amount of time doing some wiring for a new reverse camera and that comes up black on the screen which is great and then I put in auto lights and wipers because everything's just activated by software you put the bits in at either end turn it on the software and away you go however uh, they sent me the wrong sensor and so when you put your auto wipers on all it does is just put the wipers on and I mean just full pelt constantly which is really quite irritating or you can stop it from doing that by turning the wipers off entirely so you have none, which is less practical. So some, some little teething problems there just to, to sort out perhaps, but otherwise, fine. It does mean that I can then focus on dreaming on more exciting things. And I've come up with a bit of a dilemma actually, maybe you guys can or help me. I've been saving, or I'm trying to save, to get the money together for my dream car which is a, a little Aston Martin Vantage before they go up ridiculously in price because although now is a terrible time for me to buy one I suspect now might be the only time that it's even in the realms of, of, of possibility that I might be able to dream that I could afford one but the onion you see the old 
Ford Orion in the garage, that has got some problems where it stalls and cuts out. And all of a sudden, engine management has become affordable. And I think I could make a, a new two-litre engine power plant and refurbish it and have it good to go for next year to enjoy for around about £1,000. Now, do I take a grand out of the savings pot for the dream car to get the old car going? Or do I just keep that car in the garage and worry about it at a later point and keep saving for another one? Well, ultimately, if uh, if the Aston does arrive, has the Onion got to go? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because if, uh, if, <laughs> if the Onion's got to go to fund the Aston or replace the Aston or get out of the way so the Aston can live in the garage, then uh, I would actually say, yes, spend the money because it will be worth more as a complete running car with all the bits and pieces done it's you know it's like a house people will pay a lot more for a house that's had a new bathroom a new kitchen and all nicely decorated uh, so they don't have to do any of the work themselves you know there's uh, there's money in labor and there's money in effort so um it it would be a wise investment i think to uh, to drop a new engine in the onion um but where would you keep the pair of them by next door's garage, or I'd I'd make the garage bigger. I, I I'm quite lucky where I'm that I can make the garage twice the length, so I can make more space to put the cars in. Admittedly, at more cost, but it is an option. Or or I will eventually move. But I just I just don't know. It, it's this awkward thing, isn't it? Because at the moment, this beautiful thing happens to to a lot of Aston Martins, where they suddenly drop down to the point where they are the cheapest they could possibly be, like a DB7 when they were about seventeen and a bit grand which is less than the price of a Fiesta ST. So that suddenly becomes uh, yeah, an attractive proposition if ruinously expensive to run. Like anyone that's, that's, that's ever owned anything Italian, David, uh, will be able to testify. Uh, they are, they, cars can be ruinously expensive to run, uh, if not uh, brilliant in, the, in their own right. So what do you do? Do you risk the chance of not being able to afford it, even though it still might be a few years away? Oh, see now, this is really cruel. For, for the benefit of everyone listening right now, Jim is showing me some adverts for Aston Martin. Twenty-five and a half thousand pounds. Undoubtedly, one of the most graceful performance cars of recent years, um, and designed by the same guy who designed the original Ford Puma, incidentally. Which is why there's some similarities, I guess, between the two. But you see, that, that's a lot of car for the money, and it's oh, I just don't know. Well, you probably don't want to hear this, but I know a man who's got one and it's lovely and it is affordable and it doesn't cost as much to run as you might think. And it sounds awesome if you get that nice exhaust uh, opening up modification done. And well, it's, it's really that. simple. I mean, to make it sound fantastic, Tough you put enough. out Fuse 22 and it keeps the flaps open in the back and you get all the noise and it's a V8 and it's, it's oh, it's just... Oh, or just if you like your neighbours, you get the remote control put in. That's what my friend did. Oh, his neighbours started idea. complaining. Yeah, so it's just a little thing. You have a little key fob. Flicking through this uh, this website in the sold section... Next to a 2006 V8 Vantage that sold for 24300 we have a 2011 Signet, which sold for 21500 The world's gone mad. That's the, that's the mm-hmm. Toyota IQ with an Aston badge. We had this weird time when Rolls-Royce were producing minis, and Aston Martin produced the Signet, which was a Toyota IQ to reduce their CO2 emissions. Very, very bizarre but again, you know, manufacturers struggle to make interesting cars at the moment because they have to have lower CO2, which is a shame. And I understand why and all the rest of it. And we're not going to go back into that again. But it does produce some very bizarre cars like the Signet. 
I just I just don't know what to do. You think on one hand I have two cars which I, I genuinely love, the onion, which is um, admittedly a bit of a, a weird acquired taste perhaps. But to make that the car that it needs to be for the moment is probably a grand. Or if you wanted to go crazy and get other bits and pieces done to make it make it spot on, two grand. The Mini could be is, is really great, but to make that perfect you could probably spend a grand on that as well. Then all of a sudden you spent quite a lot of money. But do, are you better off having the two cars that you've already got perfect or keep aspiring for that dream? I, don't, I just, just don't know. I really don't know. I, and I appreciate this is an incredibly first world problem to have. But I just get that feeling that if I don't do this now, or now, and by now I mean within the next five years, the chances are I won't be able to ever afford to be able to do it. And then do you end up regretting that for the rest of your life? Who knows? Yes, you will, because at the end of the day, you might wake up tomorrow and your legs have fallen off or your head's fallen off or hate when that happens. whatever's happened and things have gone tits up and uh, and for whatever reason, it won't happen. So if you think you're anywhere near, just buy it because it'll make you smile and it will make you happy. And there's enough going on in the world. So do what makes you happy. But do I spend some of the money that I would spend on that on getting the onion going? That is the question. Would it make you happy? Would it make you happy to have the onion going under new power for a grand? I think so. Do it. There we go. So do it. And at this point, I think it <laughs> no, probably... No, do it. Yeah, I think at this point, it really is time to end. I think that this is some fantastic advice from my friends and colleagues here. Do what makes you happy. And I think that's all we can really take from, from this year. Take the opportunities whilst you can. And if, uh, if Graham was here, I think he would be saying that the, uh, the wine is calling. It's calling me. Yeah. <laughs> It's been great chatting you again, and by chatting, I mean rambling. Uh, a incoherent mess, which hopefully has become more coherent now Andrew's edited together something beautiful. It is, in the end, all in the editing. Isn't life all in the editing? Who knows? That's deep. But from me, Mike, goodbye. From me, Jim, goodbye. Uh, from me, David, I think, goodbye. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Bye. UK Motor Dork. A first take media production. Now where did I put my credit card for that DeLorean?